Welcome back to Cinema Adventure. We're a movie podcast where every Monday we sit down and have a discussion about a film. This week we're discussing Dress to Kill, and I'm your boy genius computer assembling murder solving host, Aiden Walker. And I'm Blake, and um, I love Nancy Allen. That's not really a disguise. I'm just going to declare it right now. So, Blake, yeah. you chose Dress to Kill I for this week. It. Fill me in. Why was this the movie you wanted to talk about? I am a generally very big Brian De Palma stan. People who maybe have like indirectly watched some of his movies, he directed movies like Scarface, The Untouchables, and Mission Impossible. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is that he made a lot of kind of, I don't know how to describe them, like these sleazy kind of Hitchcockian thrillers that were a little more low budget. And I generally, they're a little bit problematic because they're pretty dated. De Palma's been accused of like misogyny, kind of like Hitchcock was. So there are like a lot of issues I have with his movies. But at the same time, they're also very stylistically interesting. And I feel like Dress to Kill of all of his movies stands out to me the most in terms of kind of his artistic peak. Even though I would say, I was talking about this to you earlier, I didn't remember how problematic it was before recommending it. So... That'll be interesting to kind of discuss that. That's kind of the roughest thing, too, is the yeah. movie is meticulously directed. It looks really good. Yeah. And the story totally draws you in. But, it has but so it's many. really, really problematic. And really you don't dramatic. really think, or at least at least I wasn't really thinking about how problematic it was until the, the bitter end of the film when I went, okay, all right, <laughs> this is maybe not the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely dated. It is from 1980. So, you know, a lot of the cultural norms, a lot different than they are now. I would like you to do the rundown on the plot, the okay. the skinny on the plot for this week. Oh, how short should I make it? I should try to do like one of those like seven word pitches. I'm no, just kidding. I'm not doing that. <laughs> That'd be not much. <laughs> um, that would be terrible. Um, basically, it is about. Um, wait, how far? I'm trying to think of like where I should start exactly because I feel like there's like two stories. You know, I'll put it this way. Okay, so a you could preface it with that. There's two stories. Two stories. So I'm not going to do like a big detail thing. Basically, it's about a middle-aged housewife um, has kind of a, it's not really an affair. She has kind of a one-night stand with this guy that she meets in a museum. And um, anyway, on her way back home, she is slashed to death um, in an elevator by a mysterious killer. As she's getting slashed, there's like a moment where the elevator opens on another floor and like she's there kind of about to die. There's a prostitute who's standing outside, played by Nancy Allen. Also, this middle-aged woman's played by Angie Dickinson. The prostitute sees her, but she also kind of catches a quick glimpse of the killer. And so basically, the rest of the movie is Nancy Allen trying to kind of solve this mystery. Who murdered this woman while teaming up with her son, played by is it Keith Gordon, is the son's name? But yeah, lots of random twists and turns. The killer... That's kind of the issue for me is the unveiling of the killer and their motivation is we, where the movie kind of yeah, falls we, apart. Yeah, we a get bit. a glimpse of the killer in the elevator during the murder scene, and it's a tall, blonde woman wearing dark sunglasses yes. and a black leather jacket. Mm -hmm. And the murder weapon book. is a shaving razor. Yeah. Which I'm only now kind of seeing the symbolism in that. What's the symbolism in that? What did I miss? I, I mean, only like only really, I, I guess not for real, but like. Really, only a man would own a straight razor like that. Oh, I didn't think about that, but that's true. That's very true. Also, I don't know if this is like on purpose, but I also noticed that she's the killer is dressed the exact same way that Karen Black is dressed throughout much of most of Hitchcock's last movie, Family Plot. 
So I like do wonder because there are so many Hitchcock homages in this movie. Yeah, we should probably mention before you finish the plot summary that there's a lot of parallels to th- um, not Thriller, the Michael Jackson dancing video. I wish. No, <laughs> <laughs> a very different movie. Uh, to Psycho, to Psycho. Yeah, a lot in this film. Gabriel the Psycho. It also reminded me a lot of the William Castle's Psycho ripoff called Homicidal. I was definitely reminded of those two movies, and I think, I mean, I guess the main reason is. You know, you have these slasher, like a mad slasher basically running around. and But they both kind of, the, the issue with both of these movies is they're a little bit transphobic in the way they depict their killers. We kind of learn later on that. Um, in, in, in act two. <laughs> yeah, later on in act two, um, we discover that the killer is, it's this, so the psychiatrist of Angie Dickinson's character, um, has apparently been like struggling with his gender identity, but apparently in the process of um, transitioning from being a male to a female, he's been having a lot of like issues, I guess, with like bloodlust, I guess. So every time he's attracted to a woman, he turns into a woman named Bobby, I guess, and then will kill whoever's responsible for his arousal. And so the problem is, is the movie kind of equates um, the transgender identity with schizophrenia and kind of murderous tendencies. And so that's kind of the issue with the movie that yeah. Psycho has and I'm, Homicidal I wouldn't has. say that it would solve all of the problems of this movie because it would <laughs> no. not. But if they, instead of having the explainer at the end with the psychologist yeah. saying, you know, oh, his female side came oh. out and they both embody the same person. So and instead of saying like, oh, he's a transsexual, which is what they say, instead of that, maybe saying this person suffers from very intense multiple personality disorder, we would be dealing with a a different issue. But it's the fact that they outright label this person as this person's a transsexual and kind of because of that, they're mentally insane is what they're saying. Yeah, and transsexual in general is a very outdated term. So like you have that and then all these explanations that kind of turn it into a little bit of a spectacle. That's kind of where I have the issue and I totally agree. If they had just gone with like multiple personalities, that would have been fine. But or yeah. a little bit closer to fine, yeah. you know? Yeah, just, I don't know, kind of address how outlandish it is rather than, like, equating, like, an actual identity with something that's, like, murderous. Because, I mean, there's already so much stigma around that issue, especially in 1980. So to have this portrayal is pretty damaging. That's the problem with my love-hate relationship with this movie is because I hate that component of the movie, and I think it's very it's very outdated, and I think it's very tone-deaf in general. But the movie, so much of what it does as a thriller, especially stylistically, I mean, the way it presents its music, the way it, all the editing is done, it's so ahead of its time. And I think it kind of capitalizes on what Hitchcock had been doing decades before this movie came out. So it's like, it's weird. It's this really masterful exercise in style that also has so many setbacks. Because have you like seen any other like Brian De Palma movies at all or is this kind of like a first I think this is the first one I've seen actually. Oh, amazing. You know what? Do you want me to do part two? Because you kind of plot summary part one. I can hit this the second half. So after Andrew Dickinson's character is murdered in the elevator by uh, Michael Caine, (laughs) who who plays the the psychiatrist with the multiple personalities, what happens is this prostitute character played by Nancy Allen, uh, she ends up kind of picking up the straight razor, the murder weapon, and she's taken into custody by the police and she assists them. And basically they tell her, oh, we know that you're a prostitute and if you don't solve this murder, we're going to put you in jail. So she kind of gets on top of it and starts trying to figure out what the deal is. And she ends up meeting Angie Dickinson's son in the film, who you said was played by Keith Gordon. And the two of them forge this 
friendship. They basically go around and they solve the mystery. And it is, I do really like their dynamic. Like, I feel like it shouldn't work having kind of this high-class call girl with this nerdy teen. Like, I think in another movie it might seem a little bit silly, but I think De Palma really plays up the humor in their dynamic. Oh, man. I'm so so happy they didn't try to ham-fist a romance in there between the two of them. I was really worried. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm glad they did, and that would have just been, like, another thing that I find really problematic Yeah, but, I mean, the prostitute with a heart of gold trope would have been really, <laughs> it would have added fuel to the fire for already the problems in this film. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think it also helps, too, because I do, these characters in general, like, you do kind of have an affection for them after a while. Like, I think even though Buddha Palma has these issues as a writer, you know, being able to tell what's tone deaf and what isn't, he still is able to create these pretty interesting characters. I mean, right from the get-go... You just spend about 30 minutes with Angie Dickinson at the beginning, and you really get a sense of who she is. You know, she's a sexually frustrated housewife. Nothing about her life really makes her happy. She's still beautiful. I think Angie Dickinson was about 48 at this time. Um, and so she still has, like, a lot of this this sexual veracity, basically. Or that's probably the wrong word, whatever. She doesn't really have the self-worth that you feel like she should have, and so... You kind of get to know her, you feel bad for her, and then all of a sudden she's murdered and you're like pretty upset about it in general because she seems like a generally nice woman who is just kind of trying to figure her life out almost. But yeah, so like I think losing her, that's a major loss, of course. And then Nancy Allen in general, I I just love her anyway. She always plays these pretty spunky blonde characters who are kind of, they remind me a little bit of like maybe someone like Carol Lombard would play if she were a modern actress. Just this very... Street tough, very smart young woman who, even though she's maybe in this profession that might be seen as less than ideal, she's still very much in command of everything she's doing. She's really funny, too. Her character is very funny throughout the whole film. She's definitely my favorite. Yeah, she's very funny and very scrappy. You definitely, it's, I always like movies like this where you kind of have these pretty normal characters put through this, like, situation that you would see in a Hitchcock movie. And it is very believable of how... You know, these two unlikely characters kind of come together and have to deal with this bizarre situation. I think the movie is good in that way, that it does have this pretty serious murder plot, but it also is dealt with kind of humorously in addition to that. I love the scene with Nancy Allen where it's her and the the son, and the two of them end up back in her apartment, which is very nice. Mm. And she's talking about how she has the art. She's bought a, a painting, and she's ha- hanging on her wall. She says, oh, I paid $500 for it, but think of how much it'll be worth in <laughs> 20 years' time. And, I mean, imagine if the artist is dead. Then it'll be worth even more than that. <laughs> she's great. She's very funny. She's so great. Especially there's, like, one scene in the movie, too, where she kind of catches wind that the killer, which we later find out, Apparently, a lot of these scenes were possible because the police department was having a policewoman follow her to, like, protect her, I guess, who just happened to look exactly like Michael Caine's Bobby. But anyway, she's chased by who she thinks is the killer, turns out to be the police officer. But she's chased by the killer kind of through the streets and then into the subway. And I really like that entire scene because she she's being chased by them, then she kind of creates a commo- causes a commotion with this group of these very, like, this hostile group of friends, basically. So she's kind of running from these two sets and the way she goes about escaping it, you can really sense her fear, and she she's definitely dealing with it as someone in her situation would, believably. It all ends with her, you know, macing the person that she thinks is the killer, which I think is funny as well. Or what she didn't mace it it's was the, the kid. It was the kid. The kid he shows up at yeah. the last second. He's randomly there as well. But he, yeah, he says that he's he's created some compound. He's mixed together some, yeah. you know, <laughs> some solutions. Yeah, but all these scenes, yeah, they just feel like these kind of everyday people kind of just being put in peril and how are they going to deal with it and it's kind of it's not that's what I like about the movie it's not super serious and I think 
that kind of does help ease the issues that are brought up by its story. I think because it is, everything about it is kind of like half joking, it's kind of pulpy. All these exaggerated components, I think, make it not excusable necessarily, but slightly easier to stomach because you get a sense that nothing here is like serious or to be taken seriously. Do you want to talk about the scene at the beginning, the no dialogue scene in the museum? Oh yeah, that's a great, God, there's so many good sequences really, in this movie in general. Really, really something. It's something, yeah. At the beginning of the movie, there's like this centerpiece where you're basically following Angie Dickinson around a museum while she there's this kind of this man who sexually intrigues her. And so she's kind of, She's, like, half following him, half, like, there are, like, moments where she doesn't know where he is. So it's kind of, like, a weird, it's, like, she's following him, but, like, she's also being followed. And it's just this weird, almost like a stalking sequence, I guess, through a museum for that goes for how many minutes? Like, ten minutes? Probably something like that. With, like, no dialogue at all. Really, really good uh, visual storytelling. Yeah. Because you, I don't know, you, you get the sense that there's something playful happening, but it also feels a little sinister because yeah. of the music. No, for sure. I kept on expecting that she was going to go down some service hallway or something, and that's how she was going to get murdered. I had the sense that she was going to be the character that, yeah. that died. But yeah, it was so odd. I didn't expect them to end up in a cab together going back to his apartment. That's what I like, too, is, yeah, it ends with her, like, leaving the museum, and basically he, like, kind of reaches out the glove that she dropped or something out of a taxi, and there's not really any dialogue between them, like, what is, I don't know what she says, just like, oh, my glove, whatever, something like that. And then they just automatically start, like, having this, like, I don't know, sex scene in the back of a cabin. It's yeah. just, like, but the whole, it's so overwrought that it, like, it just makes sense, I guess. I just like it because De Palma takes all these components of, he's just, like, basically just trying to make this suspense happen. And there's not really a lot of rhyme or reason to it, but he's just taking components of the thriller genre and just kind of placing them inside this conventional story, which is, I think, a reason why I do like his directing style so much is because he just, he's able to insert these really artistically inspired moments in these pretty average movies for the most part. And he does that throughout the movie, just these little kind of sprinklings in there. Yeah, there's a lot of hints. Yeah. A lot of hints about what's going on. Yeah. They really, thinking back on it, I'm it's very impressive how many little things there are. Oh, for sure. Um, I think the biggest thing for me that was most impressive is just the way that the film is structured. Everything is in pairs. Everything's in yeah. sets of two. So the film starts with a scene with our main character, Angie Dickinson, in the shower. And it and that's a dream sequence. And then we yeah. get another dream sequence at the end of the film that ends with Nancy Allen in the shower. So mm. there's those two scenes. The murder weapon is this shaving razor. And then at the end, when she gets out of the shower during this nightmare sequence, she thinks she's going to be murdered by the murderer that she'd encountered. And the weapon she grabs to defend herself is the same kind of razor. There's mirrors everywhere in the film. You see the reflection of Michael Caine a number of times showing a different kind of expression that he's making in the shots that you see of his face before you see the shot of the mirror. All kinds of stuff like that. I'm sure there's more, but it goes on and on. (laughs) No, he's such a good, but De Palma's just such a good visual stylist to me in general. Like, even just, like, the museum thing, like, you can basically tell what Angie Dickinson's thinking just by the way he positions the camera. Like, he has all these little subtle tricks that I think so many directors don't think about. I think, I don't know, I feel like his movies, to me, a lot of the time could even just play out silently and just almost compile these long sequences of suspense because what he does is so visually interesting in general. Um, Because you have that, and then you have God, that amazingly edited, the moment when Angie Dickinson is, like, slashed with the razor in the elevator, just the whole way that thing is shot. I mean, it's, like, a great use of 
special effects, it does look like a blade is cutting into her skin. Oh, it's really um, graphic. Yeah. It's so graphic. But you see it from all these like weird angles and like there's even this moment when Nancy Allen's gra- like what is she's like grabbing the razor and then she like looks I'm like getting the whole second scene of this wrong. But like she like looks down into something and then like the glint that comes off the razor like hits her eyes. She looks like Bela Lugosi for a second, and then she looks up. This is all I'm like... It's something like that. I think it's yeah. Michael Caine is holding the razor, yeah, holding and he's razor. angling it into the mirror that's uh-huh. already in the elevator so that people can enter yeah. with knowing if there's people in it or not. And he catches the light in a certain way to make it flash into her eyes, I think, so that she's reaching her hand out to stop the elevator oh, yeah, door, right. yeah. and she can't see him when he drops the razor into her hand. Yeah. It's something like that. It's, it's so cool. really and very thing, intricate. Yeah, it's slow motion. And then it's like in close-up too. And you have a close-up of her eyes. And all these little touches that, I mean, I think a lesser movie would just like have Andy Dickinson be slashed, whatever. But De Palma makes it very, very cinematic and really brings out as much drama as he possibly can into this. But yeah, he does this with so many of his movies. And he does, there is like a really cool use of split screen as well in this movie but he he does use that a lot of the time to kind of tell these two parallel stories that i think maybe when you're watching it you don't necessarily realize the importance as you're watching it it's so thrilling to see this use of split screen and what does it possibly symbolize later on because like he used that technique in his movie sisters uh carrie carlito's way like it's just a recurring thing that's very it's very much a de palma staple and i think here you it's used very well how did you feel about so the ending there's like this extended sequence where Nancy Allen's character is kind of, she's staying over at Keith Gordon's, and we find out during that time that Michael Caine's character has basically escaped from the psychiatric hospital that he's been placed in. Caine shows up at the house and attempts to, or I guess in this moment he does kill Nancy Allen, but then it's like revealed to be a, like a long-winded dream. Yeah. Did you did you feel like the whole like it was all just a dream? Did you feel like that was stupid or did you think it was You know, at first I thought choice? it was really cheap, but then I kind of thought about how they framed it and the second they show you the inside of the insane asylum that they have Michael Caine committed to, I thought back on it and I I can't believe I didn't pick up on it. That whole scene is shot in this just blue light and it's totally unreal yeah what happens is michael kane's character he kills one of the nurses and steals her clothing and while he's undressing her and taking her clothing the camera goes upwards it's looking directly down and it goes up and up and up and there's this balcony with a bunch of other people who have been committed to the asylum who are looking down like they're in stadium seating yeah it's totally unreal and (laughs) i can't believe that i thought that it was real even in the context of how pulpy this movie is yeah I'm not offended by the fact that it was a dream sequence. And in fact, I like the fact that it mirrors the dream sequence at the beginning of the film because we start with the dream sequence, which is kind of this creepy rape fantasy that the main character is having before you come to real life where she's having sex with her husband and is totally unfulfilled by it. And then this ending sequence where she's just, you know, the other Nancy Allen is just sleeping, but as, you know, having this horrible nightmare. Yeah. No, I feel like when I first, because I first watched it maybe like three or four years ago or something, and I remember when I watched it, then I was really irritated, because I think in general, any ending that turns out to be like saying that what you had seen previously was a dream, I always feel like it's kind of a cop-out. They did that. I think the worst one is there's like this film noir with Edward G. Robinson called The Woman in the Window, and there's this whole thing where he like, whole story where He's going to, like, kill someone and get away with the perfect crime. But because back then a character had to be punished, they did that. Like, the it was all a dream or whatever. And so I think because of that, I have, like, this anytime a movie does that, I just automatically don't like it. But I feel like here, watching it now, 
I feel like it's just a testament to how if De Palma wants to thrill us so badly that if he has to throw in a convoluted sequence that involves a dream just to kind of garner some more suspense and some more tension, then I might as well let him because I think he does such a good job with all of his suspense sequences. I think it fits in this film too because the whole thing is a mystery and you don't really know who has done what the whole time and it's that whole build-up and that suspense that works so well that I give it a pass. You know, I I don't think this movie would have been better for it if all the main characters got murdered in their sleep at the end (laughs) or got murdered in the shower for that matter. Uh, In fact, that would have been too much of a direct rip from uh, Psycho. I agree. I think... Most of the time, 99% of the time, it was a dream the whole time is yeah. a total cop-out. You should not do it. Out. But I think, okay. I think it works because these characters are supposed to be traumatized. You know, the, the kid, both of his parents have died. You know, his mom is murdered the, at the beginning of the film in the elevator. And then he also has kind of a throwaway line in the uh, police station where they're like, oh, you need to go home with your dad. And he's like, he's not my dad. My dad died in Vietnam. Yeah, that poor um, so I think, I think the terrorizing nightmares fit with this theme that the character's supposed to be traumatized. Yeah. I think it works. I think what sums it up well, I feel like we reference him all the time on this podcast, but I was like reading Roger Ebert's review of this, and like- It's kind of hard not to reference him, I think. God, everything he writes is amazing. (laughs) Um, But I think he summed it up really well in like his last paragraph of his review. He says that it's an exercise in style, not narrative. It would rather look and feel like a thriller than make sense. And I feel like that's the perfect summary of this movie because nothing about it really makes sense. It's all very exaggerated and very hyper-stylized. And that's why we like it. It's not necessarily because, I mean, the story is pretty involving for the most part, but years later, I don't remember the story I think about. I mean, that's why I recommend it. I remember it being this very stylistically stimulating movie. So I was like, I would love to watch that again for the podcast. And so I think in the long run, that's what this movie does well, is it does, has such great style, has these great sequences of suspense. Uh, The stories throw away, but whatever. I like having an image burned in my brain more than I do. There's a lot of there's a lot of images in this film that I would I think this is kind of a nerdy way to put this, but (laughs) I would call them desktop wallpaper material. You know, it's just a shot that you could take one shot from every film and just say this is the one that I could look at every day when I'm working or doing whatever, because it's just that nice. Oh, totally. I mean, most of the ones in this film are totally disturbing, and I wouldn't want to look at them all the time, but they yeah. are very well composed. Yeah, one of my favorite shots, too, is there's, like, a moment. It's during that part where Nancy Allen's being followed by, I guess, the policewoman, and, like, there's a moment where they're kind of standing a few feet from each other, and it's angled in a way where, like, policewoman's on the left, Nancy Allen's on the right. They're a couple of feet from each other, so it's kind of this diagonal line. And they're looking forward at the same time, and the camera's still on them. And then they, like, hear, like, a car door slam, or there's, like, some commotion or something. And they both turn around at the exact same time. Oh, yeah. And so you see this parallel, and then they turn around, or Nancy Allen turns around and then sees the policewoman. But just, like, De Palma does a lot of those shots, too, where, like, one person's, like, really close to the camera, and then the other person's super far back. But I just love that composition. Like, you don't really need that, but it looks cool. So De Palma just throws it in, basically. They do that again to great comedic effect at the end of the film when the two kids are out. Well, yeah, I guess they're kind of kids. The two kids are out (laughs) having lunch or dinner somewhere Uh at a restaurant. And the way they're framed (laughs) in their conversation is they'll be to the very, very far left or right of the screen. And everything's in focus. So you can see both them and the people at the tables behind them. Nancy Allen is explaining sex change operations. And like it's just very detailed graphic descriptions of what these operations, like like a vaginoplasty looks like. She's smiling the whole time. And you just get all these reaction shots of this middle-aged 
middle-aged woman sitting at a table behind them, and she looks like she's about to have a conniption and need to sit down on a on a yeah. chaise lounge or something. It's a technique, man. No, it's such a technique. Yeah, no, his shots, and I just like it because all these techniques that he does, you see them throughout his movies, and so I feel like, especially during, there was like a period a couple years ago where I was like kind of just going through his filmography because I couldn't stop myself. I was so intrigued, and it's fun kind of watching each one and seeing like which visual things he does in different movies. Like sometimes he'll use a split screen, sometimes he doesn't, but then like he'll use these other things. So you're kind of, it's fun to pinpoint all the different techniques that he uses and like kind of which ones he likes the best. Cause they honestly, to me, they never really get old. They're just such like a signature thing. And I feel like a lot of directors don't have as many like signature shots as he does. Like they're really like that split screen. All these techniques are so De Palmian. Like it's his thing. I think a sign of a good director, and of course this is my opinion, (laughs) is being able to show sequence well. And I think that's a really basic thing to say. And you could probably say, well, most good directors do sequence (laughs) well. I mean, I think there's something to be said about using a variety of different kinds of shots in your sequence. Mm -hmm. The museum sequence we talked about earlier is very important. You know, you get all these really wide shots uh, of our main character sitting on a bench, kind of appreciating the art. You get shots of her looking at the person that she's interested in. You get shots that show her emotion where you get close-ups on her, on her hands and she's fidgeting with them. You get close-ups on her feet to see if she's tapping them. So you get all of these little storytelling techniques throughout mm-hmm. instead of them being kind of peppered all over the place throughout the movie to give you a hint of what's going on. Mm-hmm. You get them constantly. Another good example of this in this film is her son, when he is going to the office of Michael Caine to set up his hidden camera that he's mm-hmm. hidden in a box on his bike with a cutout that's set to go off every, what is it, every four seconds, yeah. I think. The whole sequence of him setting that up, looking through the viewfinder, then you get the shot of through the viewfinder on the door. It's too close. You get another shot of him looking confused. Then you get a <laughs> shot back to the viewfinder of him zooming and rotating it back out, shot back to him looking satisfied, shot of the door again, then a shot of him leaving. Yeah. I mean, that's not probably exactly how it went, but you really <laughs> get an idea of the thought process yeah. of what every character is thinking. And I love that in a movie. I think a key to being a successful director is being able to have no dialogue and be able to tell a story visually because ultimately that's what we're most interested in. That's what I think most of us gravitate toward are movies that are visually interesting and are able to tell the story just purely through how they look. And I think De Palma has that rare gift that a lot of directors don't where he could tell an entire movie silently and still derive a lot of interest from it. I'd watch it. I totally watch it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like even this movie, if you stitch together all the like non-dialogue sequences, it would still be really fascinating. It would probably general. read kind of like a David Lynch movie. It'd oh, read probably. like Eraserhead. Yeah, It'd be weird. exactly. I think, yeah, I think even if this movie, if you just cut the dialogue and just watch the movie on silent or just listen to the soundtrack, you would still know almost exactly what was going on. Exactly. You probably think that a couple characters might not hold the position that they actually do. You might be a little <laughs> bit confused, but yeah. I think for the most part, you'd be right there. Oh, definitely. Well, Blake, I think it's time for some fun facts. Wow, what an honor. Um, let's see. Also, when the movie first came out, there are sequences with Angie Dickinson where she's in, like, the shower, so you, like, see, quote-unquote, her body. That, and then in the taxi, but, I mean, it's very obviously a body double. 
I mean, it's like the body of like a 20 year old, very obviously. But the producers, in order to get some higher interest, encouraged her like in promotional interviews and stuff to say that it was her body that like was working for a while, but then it was announced that like a Playboy playmate named Victoria Johnson. It was actually her body. I guess like Victoria, she was like fine with like giving Angie Dickinson the credit, but they kind of wanted to also do that cross promotion of, you know, her pictorials. So whatever. So later on, Angie Dickinson said, um, on The Tonight Show that Dress to Kill was all, like of all the movies she was ever in, Dress to Kill was her most favorite, which is interesting because she has like very minimal screen time, but it is definitely one of her most inspired movies, so I could see that. Also, as a young man, Brian De Palma, at his mother's urging, actually did just like the, what's his name, Keith Gordon? Um, just like that character, he followed, well, I guess he didn't do this in the movie, but he like follows his a character and then De Palma followed his dad like with recording equipment in a similar fashion to see if he was cheating on his mom. And so I guess like that entire incident was a major inspiration in the making of this movie. I had also read while researching a little bit that that whole character, the young boy, was supposed to be based on De Palma. Like it was his, That's so wild. he like put himself, that was his... Makes representation sense. of himself. I feel like a lot of directors do that. They have to kind of have at least somewhat of a component of themselves. Angie Dickinson said that when they were filming the scene where she and uh, that guy from the museum are getting it on in the taxi cab, <laughs> there were like a bunch of gawkers who were kind of standing by them who were like saying, right on, Policewoman, because she was in a TV series at the time called Policewoman. So oh my God. they were really proud of her, you know, for being able to have a little affair in a taxi cab at almost 50. The taxi driver in that scene does not look happy. He's, like, no. rotating the rearview mirror, like, am That's I seeing this? Well, it's like they're in, like, this modern-day Hitchcock movie, and he's just a taxi driver. So it's like, you guys, we're not. What are you doing? Makes sense. Brian De Palma specifically wrote the part of Liz Blake for Nancy Allen because they were married at the time, which, you know, it happened. She was also in Carrie. She was in this, and then she was in Blowout. And I wish she was in more of his stuff because I feel like anytime Nancy Allen's Really in anything, I just love it. She's also in, like, RoboCop, too. And I just feel like... Is she really? Yeah. She has, like... But she has, like, a sh really short haircut in that, so... Oh. Uh, yeah. Kind of aged her up a little bit as well. She looked a little more matronly at that time, but... I think she's very underrated. I think she's a very fun actress, so... You know, whenever she's in a De Palma movie, she's, like, pretty well used, so... Gotta love it. Um, the museum scene was originally supposed to have a voiceover dialogue by Angie Dickinson. Thank God that didn't happen. That would have been, been awful. Horrible. So, you know, good on them for realizing that was a bad idea. Later on, an interviewer suggested to Alfred Hitchcock in person that Dress to Kill was meant to be an homage. Hitchcock said, you mean fromage, which means cheese in French. So, burn. burn. Very good burn. Which is weird because I feel like, I could be wrong, but I feel like I had read that like... I don't even know what movie it was, but another one of De Palma's movies that was like very much a Hitchcock tribute. Like Hitchcock liked it a lot and like I think like sent him champagne and stuff. So like interesting how he kind of is slightly complimentary, but also like I do not have a good read on Hitchcock. I heard that I he's both agree. really awesome, but I've also heard that he's like the worst. He's also problematic. I don't know. Yeah. I, I know um I have I'm no authority on the I know. No, nothing. I'm not either. I don't, yeah, know, I don't know I don't know anything. either. I have a like a Hitchcock biography in my house that I haven't read too much of. I feel like I've read a lot of the like 
or at least watch like behind the scenes things that they add on like Hitchcock DVDs. But everyone's obviously complimentary, so I feel like I only yeah. hear like the good stuff. But I mean, the fact know? that he cameos in every single one of his films might be kind of an indicator of what his personality is yeah. like. I know, and I know he was like really awful to Tippi Hedren, so mm. but we don't have to go into that today. It's fine. We'll <laughs> save it for another episode. We'll save it for another time. We'll just pick apart Hitchcock for you know an hour. That's cool. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, one more fun fact. If any, if there are any other De Palma stands listening, um, you might notice that Dress to Kill and Carrie both begin with a shower scene and end with a waking up from a dream scene. Really? That's fun. Yeah. I have Carrie checked out from the library right now, but because I haven't, I also I haven't seen it. So. I love Carrie. Got to get the De Palma stuff. It's great. Yeah, I didn't even, for some reason, it didn't even click for me that it was De Palma because I picked up Carrie and Dress to Kill on the same mm-hmm. day. I was just walking through the stacks in the library and I just saw Carrie just there and I was like, oh, I've been meaning to watch That's this great. and I grabbed it. That's the thing is he has these like very, like he has these landmark movies, but then like between the cracks, he has movies like Dress to Kill that are just like these kind of exercises in style that are all really memorable. And like to me, I kind of prefer them because when he's kind of making a movie for himself rather than the studio, kind of get some interesting experiments there. Mm. But okay, those are my fun facts. I want to tack on one fun fact. Oh, okay. That was, Give it to that me. was just for me. <laughs> I noticed while I was watching this film during the scene where, what's her name? Angie? Angie Dickinson. Angie Dickinson. Yes, where she's running (laughs) through the train station, through the Mm. metro, and she goes onto the train car, and there's the police officer who's on Uh, there. The police officer is played by the actor Sam Art Williams, who was, I recognize him, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's who that is. He plays the bartender Maurice in Blood Simple. Oh, And he was in very few movies. He wasn't in much, but he was in that, and I really like Blood Simple. Yeah, that's great. He's very fresh. He's got very good fashion (laughs) in Blood Simple, and I feel like like he should have been in more stuff because he's good. Well, good to have a shout-out here. Yeah, that's my shout-out, Sam Art Williams. If you're listening, please, we we enjoy you. We enjoyed you in these two movies. Yeah. Very good job. I love it. All right. Do you have any other thoughts? No. If I do, that's that's great. I feel like I let it be known. My gripes, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure that we could go on and on and on about the problems in this movie. We could. Uh, they are there, and we recognize them. Yeah, we know. Also, it's weird. There's not a lot of articles about how problematic it is. I like looked yeah. it up. There's only a handful, which is weird. I'm kind of surprised that there's not more. There was one article that I read that was by some college professor somewhere, and he was saying, "Oh, you know." My students, they use the word problematic now for everything that's, <laughs> that's problematic. He's just adding me and, on Twitter. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> it was interesting me. because he was like, he was agreeing with the fact that this film is problematic. He was like, there are definitely problems with it, but I'm not sure they're as big as everybody thinks. And then he was critiquing like this. There was a criterion author who had written an article about this, mm. which definitely wasn't calling out the film at all. They were just like, stylistic masterpiece belongs in the Criterion collection. Like, you, you guys. Watch it on Filmstruck. <laughs> I mean, definitely, I do think it does belong in the Criterion collection, at it least does. for its style. Yes, it does. Not Certainly. necessarily for its content. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's fine. Anyway. All right. At what, least we learned something from it. We learned something from it. We can recognize that sometimes really enjoyable movies are not very PC in general, <laughs> you know, it happens, especially when you're watching movies from this long ago. All right, what is your final thought? Aiden? My final thought is watch this film to get a sense of what it means to be a meticulous director. Do not watch this film if you are looking to be educated about gender politics. Oh, there you go. Perfect summary right there. Yeah, for me, I, I while I think that De Palma is at his stylistic peak here, I mean, this is his like, 
I mean, it's like right in between Blowout and The Fury, which are these amazingly, at least visually invented movies. I mean, this is like, this is it, kids. I still find the movie <laughs> to be pretty offensive, so I think because I do think it is so offensive, I wouldn't necessarily say this is the best start to his filmography, so sorry for making you start with this movie. I actually um, want to watch the rest of it after seeing this. There you go. Okay, never mind then. I'm so glad I could do that for you. Thanks. But for everyone else, I maybe would recommend starting with Sisters, which is a 1973 B-movie that he did that is also stylistically similar, but like isn't as offensive, or Blowout, which came out the next year, also as Nancy Allen is, and you know, is able to have a pretty intelligent plot for the most part that doesn't have as many issues as this one does. But still love it, even with all the stuff I hate about it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Recommendations. Recommendations. So I had mentioned William Castle earlier. He was kind of a Hitchcock ripoff. Didn't make a ton of good movies. And I'd mentioned his movie Homicidal, but I also find that to be really problematic. So I wonder how many times I've said that word in this podcast today. Several. We should put up a Several counter. times. Just a counter, maybe a little bleep. I don't know. But I do like his movies, so I'm going to recommend a movie he made after that called Straight Jacket. It involves Joan Crawford is playing an axe murderer, basically, who is recently released from prison who goes to live with her daughter. And she's, like, trying to kind of readjust to her new life. She's not interested in murder anymore. But then all of a sudden, axe murders start happening where she is. And so we have to wonder, is the audience, is Joan Crawford back at it again, or is someone... Maybe trying to, like, frame her. I don't know. You're just going to have to find out. And then we've talked about Hitchcock a lot, so I thought I'd pick a, a later period Hitchcock movie called Frenzy, which is set in his native Britain, which he didn't really showcase too much. He was mostly set his movies in, like, America. But this one's in Britain, and it basically follows the storyline about a serial strangler who is on the loose. And so... We, and it's because we find out early on who the Strangler is, so basically it's just about his capture, but definitely really good late period, and I think shows that even though Hitchcock had had kind of some rough patches in his later years, like he still had like a really good movie in him, and I think this is a great example of that, but those are my recommendations. What about yours? So both of mine are more kind of stylistic. I chose Taxi Driver. Because it's kind of that noir, yeah. kind of pulpy, but also, I, it's, you know, Taxi Driver has more of a political message than, it's this, such a than this movie it's does. It's such a sad movie. Taxi Driver? Yeah, I feel like I just, it's such a downer. <laughs> Do you not feel like it's a downer? <laughs> it's too much. I don't know. It's just like alienation for so long. Alienation that simmers. Yeah. And then explodes. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is sad. It's very sad. You know, I maybe I'm maybe I just thought of Taxi Driver as a recommendation because both of them feature a prostitute character who you really enjoy and are both very good. Perhaps that might be it. I that don't know. If if so, that was subconscious. Yeah, they have similar um, hairdos too. They got they like the, the curly blonde hair. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, I just thought Taxi Driver because it had kind of the same look. They both yeah. this they both also take place in New York. Yeah, Taxi Driver is much darker than Dress oh, to Kill. A lot darker. A lot darker, and still a great I don't know. movie. It's it's graphic in a different way. Different way. So that's my recommendation. Love and it. also stylistically, I think similarly, very nicely crafted, well made film is The Friends of Eddie Coyle, mm. which is a fun kind of thriller crime film, which also has a very depressing ending. And that's about Robert Mitchum is the main character. He plays Eddie Coyle. We stand. And yes, we do stand. And he's very good. He's kind of entangled in drugs and weapon running. He's just kind of like a middleman for that stuff. So people can approach him and say, I need this thing. Can you figure it out for me? He's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. So relatable. It. So he's not necessarily a bad person. He's just kind of a person with the know-how to make bad things happen. 
It's yeah. good. It's good. It's mm. it's another kind of morally murky kind of film. It's not problematic in the way that this film is, mm. but yeah, it's it's <laughs> also good. got that kind of noir stylistic yeah. feeling. Cool. I'm gonna have to check that out. Have you not seen that? I haven't seen. I think it. you'd really like it. I probably would. Is it on Filmstruck? Yes. Oh, see, I haven't renewed it. Shout out to Filmstruck. I haven't renewed it yet because I'm, I'm really poor. So Uh-oh. I don't know. <laughs> you have to come over to my place anyway, and watch it with me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it, ladies. That's it. We're done. Thank you very much, everybody. I will read All our right. thing. Cool. I'm if so you excited. want to hear more of us talking about movies, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Android, our website, and now on Stitcher. Wow. Stitcher, wow. We're on Stitcher Amen. now. Did you know that? We're making our way up. I know. We're climbing the ladders. We're climbing the ladder. Climbing the ladder. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at the Filmcast, or you can find us on our personal accounts on Twitter at Aiden Walker or at Blake W. Peterson. If you want to write to us about a suggestion for a film or just want to share your thoughts with us about a previous episode, you can reach us through email at cinemadventurepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. We're trying to get the word out as always. And if you want to follow along with us next week, we're going to be talking about Be Kind Rewind with a guest. And uh, that's all I got. All right, great. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. drunk food is like in other places? My name is Dee Dee Madigan, host of the weekly podcast Home Plates, where I ask that question and many more. Each week, an international student joins me here in the studio to discuss their food culture. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday right here on the Soundbite Network. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.